The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo-Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, and law. I am Abraham Litwin-Logan, and today we will be discussing universal basic income, commonly referred to as UBI. As many of you may know, UBI seems to have been gaining increasing traction in recent years. So today, we are going to spend a good amount of time discussing the merits of UBI and whether or not it would be a positive policy for developed nations. We're going to dive into the empirical data in relation to UBI, consider several major concerns with its implementation, and we are also going to touch on some more theoretical arguments in regards to the policy. Here with me to discuss are Michael Sia. How's Hello. it going? It's going good. Also here with us is Malik Barankovas. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you for asking. So let's get right to it. Michael, let's start with you. Has UBI rose in popularity recently? And if so, why is that? Uh, I would attribute it more to um, the Democrat, uh, Andrew Yang, who's running right now, and also because we live in a welfare state with a 7.8% poverty rate. So there has been some sort of polling increase in support for UBI. And we can we can see that with the popularity that yeah, yeah, uh, Andrew is getting in the in the pollings right now. I think he was polling like sixth, uh, re- and from someone who has came with like almost no uh, no political background, I think that w- that would s- like speak to how attractive UBI is to the layman. Another question that I think we must consider is why this is a pressing issue in today's society. I believe that uh, since automation uh, poses risks to the to work as we know it, it is important to consider UBI. According to the McKinsey Global Institute, which is an institute that specializes in analyzing trends in the global economy, approximately half of all work activities have the potential to be currently automated using technologies that we, we have available nowadays. Uh, this study looked at 46 different countries and 800 occupations, and this is relevant because one might think that automation will only affect uh, the most technologically developed nations, but this is not true. It is a phenomenon that uh, has a wide scope and may affect both developed and developing nations. Of course, uh, perhaps developing nations will enter a bit later in this scenario. Uh, The McKinsey Global Institute suggests that by 2030, uh, between 75 and 375 million workers will have their jobs displaced due to automation. I think it's important to consider the support for UBI in the light of automation uh, due to individuals such as Elon Musk who have recognized the importance of adopting UBI in the light of workers not being able to uh, find employment uh, due to automation. And with automation, uh, you think UBI is an applicable solution for what reason? Well, uh, automation will displace many types of jobs as we know them, and these people will be unable to find alternative jobs uh, so that they can sustain themselves. And UBI essentially provides an, a monthly or yearly income to these individuals that would otherwise not be able to, to, to sustain themselves. And uh, consequently, UBI seems an attractive uh, possibility. Uh, I, Elon Musk certainly thinks so. And uh, th- th- there is an argument to be made, though, of course, uh, there are disagreements. Uh, I think there's a really interesting point made by the White House like they, in the Congress report. They estimated that a worker earning about $20 an hour would eventually lose their job to a machine. This was in 2010, by the way, uh, to a machine with a 83% probability. And even workers earning up to $40 an hour would have a 31% possibility of losing their jobs. So you can see sort of like the, like the effect that automation has, not just for 
like workers who work very like menial jobs but also at a higher level so I think that might become a very pressing issue, issue in the future. Adding on to you, uh, there was a study conducted by Carl Frey and Professor Michael Osborne uh, from Oxford University in which uh, they estimated that around 47% of U.S. employment is in a high-risk category. And uh, this high-risk category are jobs that are expected to be automated relatively soon, uh, perhaps in the next decade or so. So uh, once again, this is a pressing issue uh, in, in the current uh, global scenario and context. So it, it seems to me at least that um, without this looming threat of automation, then perhaps UBI would not have caught fire um, so recently, as long as as well as without the help of you know individuals like Elon Musk and Andrew Yang. So I think that leads us uh, to my UBI proposal. So I'm just going to provide a rough outline of a, what a UBI policy could look like in a developed um, country, not a full policy plan. Um, the proposal being along the lines of introducing a 750 pound per person universal basic income per month, which works out to about 9,000 pounds per year, being discharged in monthly disbursements. There would be no registration, sorry, there would be no requirements to receive this UBI other than being above the age of 18 and completing the registration for this program, thus satisfying the universal um, expectation of a UBI, and there also wouldn't be any disqualifying factors other than perhaps being incarcerated for a violent offense. So I think that would um, meet the criteria for a UBI. Would you guys agree? I, I completely agree. I see the universality aspect uh, being uh, portrayed there. I believe that 700, uh, 750 pounds would be, uh, it's within the reasonable scope. Uh, some studies propose uh, greater amounts, others uh, far less. But I feel that 750 for uh, all intents and purposes would be a reasonable amount to, to, to consider. And then, of course, the question of cost usually arises. So in this podcast, we're going to stray away with the in-depth calculations. Um, but we, we have done the math for the UK. And at its height, the program would cost approximately 486 billion pounds per year, being funded primarily through the reduction of all social security spending, except for disability spending, a 10% VAT increase on luxury goods, taxation on economic growth that the UBI would result in, bureaucratic downsizing, and tax revenue from pushed-up income. So again, we're going to avoid an in-depth discussion of the cost. So we're just going to assume, for the sake of discussion, that it can be paid for um, through these mechanisms. So crucially, there are a variety of reasons for engaging in such a transformational policy change, but these are largely related to the empirical evidence promoting universal basic income, which we'll touch on, as well as uh, my belief that it'll be a more effective policy than social security in the status quo. So what is everyone's initial thoughts? Uh, First of all, I'd like to thank you, Abraham, for uh, this proposal. Uh, However, I do have an initial concern involving vulnerable individuals, because currently social security aids those who are arguably the most vulnerable in society, right? And were UBI to be implemented and replace social security, many of these individuals would be at loss. And while there are many vulnerable groups in society, today I'd like to focus on two specific groups, uh, the elderly and the disabled. So uh, beginning with the elderly, it is almost certain that the income they would receive from UBI would not be enough to cover their medical expenses and living expenses. Uh, I'd just like to highlight that the medical expenses of elderly people tend to be quite great and uh, Social Security helps these uh, individuals with these expenses. However, were uh, UBI to be implemented, uh, standard income would be 
given to every individual regardless of their age uh, at least that was the proposal and accordingly it, it, there's a concern because there's a concern that these individuals will be left without the aid of the state uh, what do you think about this abraham well i think specifically with elderly people you raise a very valid concern and i think a realistic um, rolling out of a ubi plan would include paying out what people have currently paid in for their social security. So what I mean by that is, if you've contributed to national insurance to paying for your social security when you retire for let's say the last 10 years, surely it's not fair for the government to simply take the money and not pay it out to you. So instead, uh, I think realistically, the government would pay you out still what you'd receive um, from what you've paid in over um, the period that they normally do. However, importantly, with a UBI and with the reduction of Social Security, you would no longer be able to continually pay in through national insurance or through other mechanisms. And while this may seem concerning at first, I believe that UBI would, you know, raise the sense of self-responsibility, which would hopefully mean people when they're young will put up away part of this UBI um, for their futures and invested for their retirement. So I, th I think that would mitigate the concerns at least somewhat. If I could just pick up on this point of yours, uh, that you uh, bring out the rolling out of uh, UBI, while uh, this is a good measure, uh, I, I would like to mention the fact that uh, even were UBI to be implemented gradually, eventually there would be people that would not be uh, benefiting from what they would have been, been paying in because of course they will not pay in anything. And this is a problem because uh, I'm not convinced that adults will be able to prepare themselves uh, for old age and manage their finances so that they're able to cope with the costs uh, uh, that they will acquire when they're elderly. I'd like to mention that currently 8.3 million people in the United Kingdom are over-indebted and 22% of adults have less than 100 pounds in savings. So this indicates that uh, currently adults are not able to responsibly manage their finances or at least plan towards the future and uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts about this because these individuals once they reach their old age uh, they, they wouldn't have the finances to deal with their medical expenses. I think that's a very fair concern but I think part of the reason that these people are over indebted and have so little savings is not only because and in many cases it's not at all because they're unable to manage their finances. It's more to do with the types of jobs that are available and the type of wages available. So that is to say that a UBI being introduced would allow people to have more disposable income where they wouldn't be over indebted in more cases and they'd have more savings. Also, you know, accompanied with a UBI rollout, I think it would be beneficial, similar to what Andrew Yang is proposing, to have um, a mandatory class in high school that teaches about budgeting and teaches about saving. So I think that would mitigate some of the concerns you have. And with uh, people who are out of high school already and sort of in that gap bef between already paying for their social security and not having paid yet, I think it would be helpful for the government to provide some classes, um, optional classes of course, pertaining to um, budgeting and saving. So I think that could potentially mitigate uh, your concerns. But I think the greater theme is uh, the promoting of individual liberty and self-responsibility in the sense that um, you're responsible for your own actions if you go over in debt or you're responsible if you have little savings because you've made those mistakes. So you're um, liable for whatever outcome um, that results in. 
And I'll just like to touch upon uh, the uh, disabled people that would, of course, also be at risk. And I, I, I think there's a difference between the elderly and the disabled in the sense that the disabled will also have uh, greater medical costs, or at least it is likely that they will have them. Uh, they're also unlikely to be able to find uh, uh, jobs as easily as a person that, 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 that is not disabled. Uh, and due to this, uh, the managing of their finances might be harder. And I, I'd like to know what's your view in regards to this, because these are disadvantaged people. And of course, uh, at least I believe that they require some protection by part of the state. Again, that's a, another fair concern. Um, with the rollout I described uh, previously, I mentioned that we would uh, maintain um, the disability social sec uh, security. So what I mean by that is that if you're currently on disability or if you, you will be eligible for disability payments at some point, you would still receive those payments even after the introduction of a UBI. And the reason we would do that is because a UBI in and of itself isn't sufficient to replace um, someone's job in most cases. So for disabled people, it wouldn't seem um, just for them to have a, a reduced um, income coming from the state simply to help more people. So we'd maintain the disability payments so they'd actually be receiving uh, more, more net money. I'd just like to uh, make two further inquiries. The first one is if these disabled people would also be receiving the UBI additionally uh, with the Social Security. Um, well, that is my first uh, inquiry. Well, the, the Social Security um, is the over-encompassing uh, name for the disability that, um, like fund they're receiving. So they'd be receiving the UBI of 90,000 pounds per year and whatever uh, current disability payments they'd be eligible for. Okay, uh, well, I think regarding a, a different issue, it's essentially sort of like runs in the same thread of what Malik was saying. It's essentially that um, would this be in the public interest to essentially give money to rich people? Because we've spoken about, you know, the, dis the disabled and the elderly and whatnot. But to the very rich who live in London, um, this nine thousand pound per year would just essentially be pocket change, right? So why why would we offer to give this? Like, shouldn't wouldn't it make more sense for it there to be like, say, for example, like a maximum capacity of like, if you make more than X amount a year, you're not entitled to this UBI, so that you can take this nine thousand pound and redistribute it among those who actually need it. I think that's a very interesting concern, and I'll admit initially when I was learning about uh, UBI, I was also taken aback with people of unlimited wealth also receiving this UBI. But upon um, my research, I discovered three main reasons why I think it would be a good idea to extend UBI to everyone over the age of 18. And the three reasons are this. Firstly, it would re remove the current stigma associated with receiving government benefits. So in the status quo, if someone receives food stamps, for, exa for example, there's a large stigma when they're going to a store and receiving um, the equivalent food to that food stamp. Or there's a huge stigma with telling people, oh, I'm not employed, I'm on welfare, right? It makes it harder for people to engage with general society. It makes harder for, it harder for people to get other jobs. So I think that's one good reason. In addition, um, these people, especially as wealthy, these wealthy people, will be paying a disproportionate amount of this new VAT, which would pay for a large part of the UBI. So it seems a little difficult to convince these, um, you know, wealthy people who have large power within government 
that a UBI would be a good idea if they're the ones who are mostly paying for it and they're not getting anything in return. So the £9,000 is pocket change to many of these wealthy people, as you rightfully mentioned. But even if they receive something from the government, even though they're paying uh, at a net negative, I think it would make them you know, um, feel a part of the policy and not feel totally opposed to the policy. So I think that's another um, a fair rebuttal. And then I think the third um, reason would be relating to the bureaucratic costs and the administrative costs. And what I mean by that is in the current welfare system, there are huge costs associated with checking people's income, checking people if they're, if they're employed, if they're drug users in some countries, if they're felons, things like that. And for all these um, various um, checks and balances, you need to hire more people. The government has to spend more money. So if you give a check for the same amount of money to every person in a country with no checks, with no requirements, um, one could easily expect, I think, to reduce administrative costs. So this would be another cost-cutting measure um, for the government. I have another concern in relation to UBI in general. And uh, I have to say that while it is generally accepted that the implementation of UBI will not undermine people's desire to work, uh, I, I just want to mention right now that it's a misconception that UBI undermines uh, people's desire to work. And as an example for this, I'll uh, list uh, what is currently done by the Eastern Band of Cherokees. Uh, they essentially issue around $4,000 uh, to $6,000 uh, US dollars per year to members uh, of the band. And a study done upon the employment rate of these members before the implementation of this dividend and afterwards showed that there was no real difference in employment rate. So uh, it, it, should, it should be established that UBI probably will not lead uh, people to be, to be discouraged to work and uh, lead them to shun work. And while that is true, I want to emphasize that UBI also arguably does not encourage people uh, to seek work and to uh, desire work. And as evidence for uh, this uh, statement, I'd like to bring uh, a recent experiment that was done in Finland. Uh, essentially, there was a one-month trial in which 2,000 unemployed individuals were given the monthly stipend of 560 euros uh, with no strings attached. In other words, they weren't required to be actively uh, seeking uh, work. There, were, there was simply no requirement for them to receive uh, uh, this uh, dividend, this stipend. And... Uh, a comparison was made between the employment rates of these individuals and a control group, and uh, no real difference was shown. So, while arguably UBI does not encourage, uh, does not discourage people from seeking work, it also does not encourage people uh, from seeking work. So, I'd, li I'd like to uh, inquire as to your thoughts in regards to this, because one of the, uh, well, one of the arguments in favor of UBI is that it uh, increases or would lead to an increase in employment rate as. Uh, people would feel more, more, more comfortable seeking jobs uh, knowing that they have uh, security behind them. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting point, and I'm also familiar with the Finland study. Um, I think, though, the empirical data on this question is, um, isn't very clear in the sense that I looked at two um, cash, unconditional cash transfer examples in the Alaska Permanent Fund and Iran's unconditional cash transfer test, and they found um, different results than the Cherokee test as well as the Finland test. In the sense, in the Alaska example, 
um, 17% more Alaskans began working part-time jobs. And in the Iran example, um, there was an increase in traditional employment for women and self-employment of men. So I don't think the empirical data is very clear on this question. But I think even more importantly, that even if employment did not increase, this is not necessarily the worst thing. So I think there's other good reasons for having a UBI. And importantly, even if employment went down by a little bit, this might not be that bad in the sense that I think as a society, we should encourage people to explore things they want to do, not necessarily relating to their employment. So if, for example, more people um, engage in art and cultural activities because they now have a little more money to rely on, and because of that, they take less hours at their part-time job, I don't think that's such a bad thing necessarily. What do you think? I do believe that there's something to be valued in work because work helps us form social relations and uh, therefore work is, is an important aspect of our lives. Many people identify uh, as part of their identity, uh, their job, uh, people take pride in them. So I think that having a job is, is something to be, to be encouraged in society. Uh, I realize that it might sound a bit uh, antiquated uh, due to the uh, common uh, Western uh, uh, well, idealism towards uh, the, the work culture. But, but I do believe that there's a point to be made here in the sense that work, work is something valuable and it's not something to be shunned. Uh, some people find pur purpose uh, uh, in their works and uh, I, I feel that it would be something negative to an extent if uh, UBI discouraged people to seek work, which is not the case, but it, it arguably doesn't encourage them to to, to, to seek work. I think this also relates to the idea of bargaining power in the sense that maybe we could satisfy both people pursuing things they want to pursue as well as um, working and contributing economically like you touched on. What I mean to say is that with a UBI, potentially workers would be able to have more bargaining power since they could rely on this UBI and their savings as a result of the UBI to say no to certain jobs or to say no to the lack of salary increases and that sort of thing in order to actually pursue what they want to pursue. Do you guys think that's a, a valid argument? I believe that's a, a very interesting point in relation to the bargaining power aspect. Uh, I'm not sure if it actually uh, work in practice. Uh, there are already other uh, mechanisms to pursue better bargaining power, uh, the formation of syndicates and uh, other bargaining uh, institutions. Uh, I, I'd like to see uh, in practice whether it, it would play out or not. Well, I guess it's also like, I think it relates back to the power of like sort of personal autonomy. So say in the hypothetical, like you would make you would make net, net maybe 200 pound less if you were to work, say for example, I'm working in construction, I want to be like an artist or something, right? You would net less, but having the UBI would mean that if you shifted jobs, you would technically be still be making around the same amount, if not more. So I think that is also quite empowering to the person because then if you think about it from like a utility standpoint, then it would make me as a person more happy. And it, uh, going back to your point as to how work like how people value work and how people see purpose in work, I think there's also something to be said about being able to do something that you enjoy as opposed to doing something just for the money. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting discussion. Yeah, um, if you want to move on, I just have a, just to go back to a question like that I had regarding your smaller bureaucracy point. Mm -hmm. So currently in the UK, essentially, I think in social services, there are about like 300,000, uh, like, yeah, 300,000 people like fully employed. And you said, you mentioned that 
with the UBI would have a smaller bureaucracy, therefore it uh, things would be cheaper. But a smaller bureaucracy means that a large proportion of these people being laid off, which would then lead to more people being on UBI. So there's like some sort of, there, there seems to be <clears throat> some sort of uh, cyclical effect happening right here. So I was just wondering if you could like address that. No, that's an interesting um, inquiry. I think a lot of people currently employed by the government in relation to the administering of social security are often tax-related experts. This is because the tax code is very unclear regarding social security disbursements. So we see that a lot of high-skilled people are currently being employed by the government by something that is for something that is very overcomplicated. So if we were to simplify the way social security works in our country, and this would likely lead to a lot less people being needed, these people who are highly skilled would be able to um, contribute to the economy more effectively and move into positions of employment um, where their skills could better be used. But even if this wasn't the case, I don't think it's a good argument to say essentially that just because we employ a lot of people, we should not reform to a better system in order to keep these people employed. So whether or not what I first said in, in the sense of if they'd be able to easily find other employment, whether or not that is true, uh, I still think um, simplifying the bureaucratic system in the sense of administering social security is a good thing. Right. I'd like to go back to the point of the vulnerable individuals. I confess that I forgot my second question in relation to that, and it was uh, whether or not there should be other individuals added to this list other than the disabled. Uh, what do you think? Do you think only the disabled should be protected? Because uh, I believe there's an argument to be made that more people should be protected, not only the disabled. And in that sense, it would mean having social security to a great great deal, which would undermine the idea of implementing an UBI. Well, what other groups of people would you uh, think should be potentially protected? Well, uh, I, I'd argue that asylum seekers and uh, refugees, for example, should be protected as uh, they are vulnerable uh, groups. And they, they, while they don't receive social security per se, they do receive benefits from the government. And uh, these governments, uh, these, this aid, of course, costs money. And uh, UBI is an expensive uh, endeavor. So uh, were it to be implemented alongside a lot of other social policies, uh, I, I believe it would become unviable. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting um, point. I think um, based on my understanding of the way the UK's governmental system works, specifically the benefit structure, um, I don't believe asylum seekers and refugees receive um, income uh, from what is typically known as Social Security. So I think that would be a separate issue, which I haven't looked into cutting. So I, I don't think it's intrinsically linked to introducing a UBI in the sense that you could maintain the status quo with how we treat refugees and asylum seekers and still um, implement a UBI um, into the system. Yeah, um, I think just quickly moving on to my 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 last concern which is essentially with having this ubi you get this issue where like you said for example like say for example somebody's like a drug addict or you know anything along those lines giving them nine thousand pound a year would kind of mean that they are buying thing, uh, things against the public interest and they're not necessarily reinvesting it into the economy because we know drugs are illegal so there's no way to tax something that's illegal therefore the money never really 
like comes back so you see like a large group of these people siphoning off money to uh, like the other institutions which are, which don't necessarily benefit the economy mm-hmm. uh, yeah that's a very common concern i think and it seems intuitively at least to me that this would be the case why wouldn't people who are drug addicts uh, who buy alcohol in excess why wouldn't they use this extra money to continue buying these things which we deem to be against the public interest However, surprisingly, um, to me at least, the data seems to suggest just the opposite. So in a large study conducted by the World Bank in cooperation with researchers at Stanford and the University of Chicago, they looked at 4,000 papers discussing unconditional cash transfer programs, narrowing these papers to 19 studies from around the world that measured overall consumption relating to participation in a cash transfer program, focusing on goods such as alcohol and drugs. And they pursue this exact question you're asking. Will people buy these goods, which we deem to be against the public in- interest, more often with more money um, than they would in, uh, with, without this unconditional tr- cash transfer? And the researchers themselves, interestingly enough, um, expected to come to the exact same result as you. However, they actually found the exact opposite. So in examining um, these estimates of spending on alcohol and tobacco, they found that above 80% of the time and 80% of the or above of the unconditional cash transfer programs, it was a negative effect. So what this means is that people actually bought less tobacco, less drugs, when they were receiving more money from an unconditional cash transfer. So I thought this was really interesting. I wanted to ask you guys, why do you think um, this is? I think it may be because of the dependency issue. Like when you have nothing, the only thing that you know you can sort of garner happiness from is feeding the unhealthy addiction that you have. But maybe like I think it will be more of like providing security. So once they have like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like once they have their basics, their basic needs met, then they can move on to something else. So by empowering them in that sense, it might give them sort of uh, like, sort of the autonomy to go and spend on something else that might not relate to their addiction at all. I agree with Michael's point. I'd just like to point out though, that this is a, a singular study. I don't know if there are other studies that point to similar results. I, su- I suppose not. So we do have to be aware of the fact that this uh, outcome might not reflect what would happen in, in a large scale uh, since uh, we, we know that experiments are prone to fail at times. Uh, and I just think we, uh, we should keep this in mind and the audience should keep this in mind when considering uh, the results of the study. Mm-hmm. To my understanding, it's, there seems to be quite a few um, studies on this topic. They come to the same or similar results. Um, but it's always good to um, keep in mind where a study is coming from and um, h- how accepted um, its, its measurements are. Also, I think it's possible that these people are now having larger amounts of disposable income when previously they had um, high amounts of debt and little spending money like Malik talked about um, earlier. So I think once they realize that they have more money that they can spend on more things, they spend smarter. Do you think that's possible? That's a very interesting point. And I think uh, it relates back to your idea of giving uh, people uh, autonomy. This study encourages uh, the government giving more autonomy to its citizens as it indicates that citizens are prepared and are capable of handling their own affairs. 
and uh, thus the state should be less paternalistic. And if if the if the study is to be believed, and uh, I think there is some credibility to it, uh, I, I feel that there's something positive, and I do believe that uh, people are able to uh, beyond uh, their their addictions uh, if they're provided with uh, sufficient means. So why don't we move towards the system that we're getting rid of? Social Security. Is everyone on board? Should we get rid of it? Well, uh, I, I do believe that Social Security can be criticized on many grounds. For example, uh, that Social Security discourages people from saving money and uh, that it is itself very costly. However, say what you will about uh, Social Security, it has been effective so far in reducing inequality to a great extent. And this is because not everyone benefits from Social Security. UBI would uh, give the uh, a standard income to all individuals, not only those who are the most vulnerable and who arguably needed the most. Uh, and, and thus, uh, UBI wouldn't be uh, tackling the, the, the problem of inequality that exists in, in our society. And, and Social Security does this. Uh, and I also want to question why there's a need to replace Social Security with uh, UBI. I must outline that most of the studies conducted so far don't propose uh, UBI to replace completely social security some sort of social security is still necessary so uh considering that social security is is necessary wh why why do we need to substitute it uh with uh, this uh, new initiative i'd like to to know what are your thoughts in regards to this okay i think uh ubi tackles certain issues that might require like more specific approaches in conventional welfare systems so essentially in like so the way social security works now is they identify a problem area and then they, they move money to fix that problem area. So say, for example, like you have issues with um, like education rates. So un like people who are like not privileged, like they don't have the ability to go to school. So you open a non-profit school so that these, like you give them access to education. But um, there's this really interesting study by Abhishek Roy, like on the Seven Pillars Institute, like it was part two of their Universal Basic Income series. They did, a, they ran a, a two quite important case studies, in one in Kenya and one in India. So the one in Kenya was sixty-three villages received unconditional cash transfers worth about a thousand, a thousand dollars, I think. I think it might be USD, which led to investments made in that village increasing from 23% to 58%, as opposed to the 63 other villages which didn't receive these unconditional cash transfers. So you can sort of see that um, like it relates back to the point that Abraham made of how giving people UBI would lead to like smarter spending, essentially. And the one in India was very interesting, it goes back to what I said about education. So essentially, ad adults receive 300 rupees a month and children receive 150 rupees a month. So it was compared to control villages, which didn't receive this UBI. And the education levels were significantly higher in the, in the age group 14 to 18, with the male difference was 84.4% to 65.6% in the control villages. And the female difference was 65% to 36.1%. So essentially you can see that increase. And I think that comes from how in a conventional social welfare state, it would you would build a non-profit school, right? But with the UBI, you would essentially empower these underprivileged children to just go to a normal school. So it sort of like breaks that stigma as well that we were speaking about. And it also makes it more efficient because then you don't spend this massive amount for a school that you already have that people just can't afford to go to. So I think that's, there's something to be said about how UBI is more efficient as opposed to a conventional welfare state. 
I think that's a very interesting point you bring up, especially how uh, UBI can tackle other issues and to a certain extent inequality in itself. However, I'd like to ask you how you feel about the systemic racism that does exist in certain nations in which there are certain groups that are uh, inherently at a disadvantage, uh, perhaps relating to the, uh, the fact that they, they were subjected to uh, the, the ruling class for a long time. Uh, so that there's a disparity between uh, different races, right? And uh, arguably, Social Security helps bridge that inequality in the sense that those who have greater resources won't be benefiting from this, while uh, those that, that, that need the help will be. Uh, I'd just like to know your thoughts in regards to this. I think it's sort of like going back to the case study in India, the female difference was like significantly different. And there was, there was so now 65%, and India is generally known as like a patriarchal state. So the females stay at home. You know, they take care of the children and whatnot. They don't usually have a, like they don't usually have the opportunity to get higher education. You see a large proportion of them dropping out like in in higher in at higher levels of education. So I think that like you can sort of take that idea and plot it to like discrimination, for example. So essentially by having by allowing these people, like by empowering them and giving the them the ability to just attend a normal school, it would sort of close the gap between those two things. So essentially, like I'm attending the same school as you are. There's no difference. I can pay for it. Like it might just be because of UBI, but still, there's there's that sort of level of equality that comes in when we can both attend the same school. But isn't that sort of an argument against UBI in the sense that these women uh, studied in India under this patriarchal society did so much better when they received just the same amount as the men received. So wouldn't it be better to uh, give them even more money than the men if, for example, you gave them $1,200 and $800 to the men? Wouldn't that be even better? I think that that would I foster like this idea of like sort of almost like resentment towards the the other class because, I mean, if you think about it, like the whole point of a UBI is so that it's equal, it's equality. You give the same amount of rich person as you do a poor person. So when you start drawing arbitrary lines in the sand, like say for example, you're a female, I'm a male, I get less than you because I'm, you know, like naturally privileged or whatever it might be. I think by doing that, then you start cutting away at what UBI truly aims to promote, which is, you know, like equality across basically anything and everything. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think we're getting into discussion maybe outside of the scope of UBI uh, a little bit. So I know we can all talk about um, affirmative action and programs similar to it for a long time. But Malik, did you want to jump in? Yeah, so bringing back the conversation uh, to UBI and Social Security, uh, it's recognizable that uh, implementing UBI would mean an increase in government spending, right? So wouldn't you guys believe that instead of using that increased government expenditure to uh, implement UBI, investing those resources in social security might be a way to enhance these programs and lead uh, to better outcomes to those that are involved, uh, considering that social security has been uh, uh, effective, at least to a certain extent, in reducing inequality? I think that's interesting, but I'm not sure. I think there's a variety of problems uh, inherent within social security that would make it difficult. Two of which are firstly that under traditional welfare systems, under social security systems, they often create disincentives to work. And this um, this is because once you receive a certain amount of income, you no longer make that much more money by going up to the next level. So people are will prefer in many cases to just stay on welfare and not pursue work. And I think this 
relates to a more fundamental concern with Social Security in the sense when it becomes so complicated trying to make up and mitigate um, external factors um, and s improve the situations of specific people, that can, it can often actually become convoluted and uh, result in things which are not intended. So I think Social Security is a little too complicated for its own good, if that makes sense. And also, with Social Security, because of the way it works, funding is very inconsistent. And what I mean by this is, for example, when there's a large elderly population, they're going to need to um, borrow a lot of money. The, state, the government's going to have to borrow more money to fund this um, now older population. And I think this points to another fundamental problem with Social Security in the sense that if it's not uniform, if it's not universal, if it's not basic for everybody, um, it becomes very uh, complicated to administer and it's very difficult from a governmental perspective to have the uh, right amount of money for each specific, specific program uh, of which they, they run. So I think that's another concern with Social Security, perhaps warranting um, it, its reduction or dismissal. Yeah. So I, I think just one you know final question, just if everyone can give a sentence on it. So we talked about automation previously and UBI potentially being a solution to automation. So Michael, do you think it is the right solution? Yes or no? Yeah, I think I would take, uh, I think Zuckerberg has, like he's spoken about it before, and I think it's important for us to benefit from the technology that we've created. And I think we as a society should be able, not just the person who created it, but you know, it's just like for the greater good that everybody should be able to benefit from something. So I think like that's my stance on it. Uh, I don't think that UBI is a solution for automation in the sense that we have had several technological revolutions so far and uh, jobs have adapted to essentially uh, meet people's needs in the employment market and uh, I, I believe that uh, jobs will continue to adapt and thus automation will not uh, lead uh, to the doom of, uh, of employment as we know it. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. So let's leave things there. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, Malik. Thanks, Abraham. A couple notes before we go. If you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or like our page on Facebook also at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you for listening, and you'll hear from us again soon.